Welcome to this podcast, part of our series on market abuse topics. I'm joined today by Daniel Newton, Alton Seeler, and Anne Law Vincent. Our clients trade globally, but market abuse regimes are largely national affairs. And one consequence of that is that a single trader and his or her compliance department will need to understand both the differences between regimes and how even similar regimes might be applied differently depending on the approach of national enforcement agencies. With that in mind, we thought that in this podcast, it might be helpful to highlight some similarities and differences between the regimes in some of the main global trading jurisdictions. We're going to use some recent developments in US case law relating to insider dealing as a springboard. Alton, are you able to start us off by explaining recent developments with respect to insider trading enforcement in the US? Yeah, thanks, Tim. You know, there have been a number of interesting developments uh, in the US over the past several years, and including just over the past few months, uh, specifically relating to cases involving tips of inside information by corporate insiders to outsiders who then trade on that information. So first, just to back up a little bit and, and give some context, because U.S. law in this area is somewhat unique. The U.S. doesn't have a law that specifically defines and prohibits insider trading. There's no general duty that's imposed on market participants not to trade based on material non-public information. But instead, courts over many decades have interpreted statutes and regulations that prohibit fraud to encompass prohibitions on insider trading. So insider trading law has evolved over decades of judicial interpretation. This, of course, creates some uncertainty and inconsistency in US law, particularly relative to other jurisdictions where these rules have been codified. And in the US, there have been disagreements among the courts about how to apply the law. Uh, I will note that Congress is considering an insider trading statute with the goal of codifying and clarifying existing law. They've considered this in the past and, and most recently passed the House of Representatives here in the U.S., but hasn't gained traction in the Senate in the past. Remains to be seen uh, whether that will go anywhere, but a statute would actually provide quite a lot of clarity in this area. But traditionally, insider trading is prosecuted and enforced by the SEC under the securities fraud statute which is Title 15, and that'll come back later because there's another statute that, that comes under a different title, and it's implementing regulations. So in cases involving inside information that's shared with others, the government has to prove that the insider or the tipper breached a duty that he owed to someone else, such as a corporation where he was an insider, in disclosing that information to somebody else. And the focus on whether a duty has been breached is whether the insider who disclosed the information did so in exchange for or in anticipation of a personal benefit. So this is called the personal benefit test. And for the recipient of the information, who traded on the information, to be liable, the recipient has to know that the information was disclosed in breach of the duty. So in recent years, there have been a, a series of cases in the courts of appeal and, and one recent Supreme Court decision addressing how to apply this personal benefit test. It's generally applied pretty broadly. So a monetary benefit to the insider is obviously sufficient, but that's not required. It can be a non-monetary benefit. It can be a non-tangible benefit. And in 2016, the Supreme Court clarified that the personal benefit can be inferred simply by giving the inside information to a relative or a friend. Now, the thornier issues arise when there isn't a close relationship between the insider, the tipper, 
and a tip B. So there's a case in 2014 uh, in the Second Circuit, which is here in New York, that narrowed the application of the test. But after that 2016 Supreme Court decision I mentioned, the Second Circuit reversed course and held that merely intending to benefit the recipient is sufficient to infer a personal benefit. So this is an issue that courts are going to continue to grapple with over time. And the most recent development um, this year has been against that backdrop. So this was a case where DOJ brought a criminal prosecution under the in, for insider trading under both the securities fraud statute that we were just discussing, Title 15, and a separate securities fraud statute that's been on the books for a while. It's under Title 18. But it hadn't typically been used for insider trading. Now, it may have been that prosecutors have been hesitant to use a new statute with less developed case law, preferred the traditional approach. But in this case, they, they went for both of them. The jury acquitted the defendant on the former charge, the Title 15 charge, but convicted on the Title 18 charge. Now, the Second Circuit affirmed a jury instruction that explained that this personal benefit test that I was talking about only applied to the Title 15 charge and did not apply to the Title 18 charge, essentially holding the personal benefit test was only for the Title 15 charge. Now, earlier this year, the Supreme Court vacated this decision. They did it in light of a, a decision on a separate issue, which maybe we can talk about on a future podcast. But that decision has been vacated. And now, in light of that Supreme Court decision on a separate issue, the DOJ has asked the Second Circuit to reverse the convictions on the Title 18 charges. So the Second Circuit has, has yet to decide it, uh, that decision probably coming out soon, but it's very possible that the court's prior decision on the personal benefit test will be in a bit of a legal limbo, leaving other courts to decide whether to apply it or not. And it also remains to be seen whether, in light of that decision, DOJ is going to bring more frequent charges under Title 18 to avoid these personal benefit test issues, which everyone widely predicted when that decision came out. Thanks, Sultan. That's very interesting. Dan, any thoughts from a, a UK perspective? Thanks, Tim. There's an interesting difference here, perhaps, between the US and the UK and the EU as well, for as long as the UK stays aligned, in the sense that there isn't a need for a personal benefit as you have for a tipper under US legislation. Um, that concept simply is not part of UK and EU law for the administrative or civil enforcement of market abuse, at least. You don't, <laughs> you don't have to be any good at it in order to get in trouble. There's a good example, actually, in a recent FCA enforcement action against a certain Mr. Horn for market manipulation. He didn't actually make any profit for himself or his employer, which shows that the FCA will pursue individuals who haven't benefited at all. Similarly, there's a recent FCA successful criminal prosecution where Ms. Abdul Malik was the compliance officer who fed information to a day trader and family friend, but she did not benefit financially from the disclosure of that inside information. That said, it's not it's not entirely irrelevant, I suppose. Financial benefit does crop up after civil liability is established in the sense that disgorgement of profit is one element of the financial penalty set by the FCA when calculating what the administrative penalty should be. And it's also a factor considered by a court when sentencing for a criminal conviction. In the UK, there is a separate regime also for criminal offences relating to insider dealing and improper disclosure of inside information. And for that criminal regime, potential defences are available where an individual did not expect to profit from trading on the inside information. 
Um, so it does crop up in a few ways, but not as a sort of key part of the, the civil test. And note, actually, that even um, even though it is available as a defence in criminal uh, in criminal proceedings, that didn't help Ms. Abdel Malik, in the case I just mentioned, um, avoid criminal conviction when she passed information to, the, to her family friend, day trader, uh, and didn't make any uh, benefit for herself. Thanks, Dan. That's interesting about the absence of a profit motive. Uh, Alton, how does US law view that issue? Yeah, you know, the personal benefit test sounds like a pretty interesting conceptual distinction between the US and other jurisdictions. But as a practical matter, the distinction, it might not be as significant as it appears on the surface, given how broadly courts have applied the personal benefit test, particularly in recent years. So it would not, for example, be a defense for an insider to show that he didn't profit financially from giving a tip. Financial benefit isn't required. The ultimate issue is whether he breached his duty to the company. You know, in the U.S., we also have dual criminal and civil enforcement of insider trading violations. So this generally doesn't pose a double jeopardy issue. The double jeopardy clause of the Constitution applies to criminal punishments. uh, And both DOJ and the SEC have the authority to enforce Title 15 securities fraud. And so parallel enforcement actions and follow-on enforcement actions are extremely common. Uh, But there is one interesting note here. I was talking earlier about Title 18 securities fraud. Uh, where the Second Circuit had ruled that the personal benefit requirement did not apply. Only the DOJ has the authority to enforce Title 18 securities fraud. The SEC does not. So it's possible that if this is followed, that in some respects, it might be easier for the government to bring a criminal prosecution than a civil enforcement. But that, that remains to be seen. Thanks, Alton. Very interesting. Any thoughts about that from a European perspective, Anne-Law? Yeah, thanks, team. The position is is quite different in Europe. The rule against double jeopardy, which is broadly applied across EU, means that for the same conduct, a person cannot face both administrative enforcement in addition to criminal prosecution. In France, for example, since 2016, the regulator and the criminal prosecution authority decide amongst themselves who will initiate and handle the proceedings, like a railway switch. And I understand this is also true in the UK and in Hong Kong. In some aspects, the protection is the same for the person targeted by the proceedings. For example, case law applies the right to silence to administrative proceedings so that a person can decline to answer questions to avoid self-incrimination in relation to criminal and administrative sanctions. But in other respects, there is much lower protection from use of authority powers in administrative and regulatory investigation. An example relates to the access to the investigation file. In a criminal investigation, French law provides the right to obtain a copy of the investigation file. Such right does not exist in administrative investigations led by the IMF, the French market regulator. According to the IMF and French court, the rights of the defense and the principle of adversarial proceedings only apply to the enforcement phase of the proceedings, which are open by the notification of grievance and do not apply to the investigation phase. The only requirement is for the investigation phase to be conducted in a fairly manner and in such a way that the rights of defense are not irreparably damaged. Thanks, anne It's interesting hearing about the similarities and differences between the US, UK and uh, European insider dealing regimes. 
But I guess as a takeaway, we might be able to cut through the differences by focusing on the core substance that cuts through those regimes. The idea that the law is designed to take away the advantage that an insider with material non-public information has, such that he or she can't misuse that information uh, by, for example, trading, counselling or procuring others to do so, or by tipping others off uh, to that inside information. I guess it's also interesting to see that regulators like those in Hong Kong, and I think Dan mentioned also uh, earlier on the UK, are also looking at insider dealing from a different perspective after successful enforcement against a wrongdoer or wrongdoers uh, by looking at compensating those who are on the end of of an insider trade. The the thinking there is it's no good sending insider dealers to jail if the victims aren't compensated. Alton, what, if anything, have you seen in the US in that regard? In the U.S., there's a range of financial consequences that can be imposed, uh, including fines and redress to investors and other victims of the fraud. And, and this is very this is very common. So the SEC can seek disgorgement of profits, and the Supreme Court recently held that it's generally required to distribute those profits to the victims of the fraud. In criminal cases, courts can order order restitution to victims for certain offenses, such as conspiracy to commit securities fraud. Now, the issue of who qualifies as a victim and is often litigated, uh, so is the amount of restitution that's at issue. Thanks, Alton. And thank you, Daniel and Anne Law. Well, it's clear that the rules on insider trading can be complex, particularly in a cross-border context. But with some careful thought, it's possible to navigate one's way through them. Thank you for listening to this podcast in our series on market abuse. You can find other podcasts and blogs on this topic on our freshfields.com financial services page. Thank you.